Welcome to the 452nd episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Thank you for listening. Today I have a guest, Mel Weinstein. He is the author of the book Fast Food Ingredients Revealed. Mel is a retired chemist and he has also been a chemistry and uh, teacher at community college. But he talks about being a food addict to a food fanatic as far as the ingredients. And he's, he uh, developed an interest of what is in our foods. Um, he worked initially for Tate & Lyle, which is an industrial food ingredient manufacturing firm, into the 1990s. So he knows what goes in things that are on the store shelf. He decided to take a deep dive into ingredients that are in fast food restaurants and um, it's quite apparent that um, you know there's a lot of ingredients you know that always comes to mind everybody is familiar with um, you know 36 ingredients in a chicken McNugget for instance the food industry took a worse uh, a t- I'm sorry took a turn for the worse probably in the 1960s with the invention of the Swanson TV dinner and uh, you know took mom out of the kitchen one night a week and people would have the tv dinners and watch their favorite gun smoke or whatever and then you know pretty soon uh we started getting you know fast food restaurants that people would get a meal when they were traveling with and then it became dinner and a lot of people eat the majority of their food from a fast food drive through restaurant a lot of people get the majority of their food from even takeout restaurants. And now with Uber Eats and things like that, you don't even have to go out. You can order in you know, virtually every meal, including Starbucks, that you want. So you have no control over the ingredients that are in uh, the products. I can date myself, but one of the first low-fat products that came out was Snackwell cookies. And the idea was that if you did low-fat, um, it would be a way to snack without yeah, adding calories and to decrease the incidence of heart disease because a uh, study came out that if we decrease the amount of fat in our diet, then we could possibly decrease cardiovascular disease. But the Snackwell people were, and I believe they're made by Nabisco, but they, they were pretty smart. They really didn't um, decrease the fat as much as increase the sugar, so the ratios change. And if you look at a Nabisco cracker, you know, a um, Ritz cracker, um, over the years, the amount of fat didn't really change. The amount of sugar went up. And so low-carb people will blame sugar, but the fat was still there, and the fat was causing the problem before it all started, but now we've just made it more calorically dense by adding sugar to a product and then, and then always you know, binders and softeners and things to make things uh, last longer and longer and longer on the shelf. So the question is, what does your body do with all these additives besides, you know, the basics? Some may get passed through and metabolized by the liver and, and passed out through the feces and the urine, but a lot of it actually gets stored, and we store most of our toxins in our fatty tissue, just like fish do and animal do, animals do. Over time, that leads to more and more inflammation, and, of course, more and more accumulation of toxic compounds can lead to abnormal cell formation and cancers and and whatnot. So, you know, we put so many things in our storage units of our cells that we don't even know what's there and how they interact and how they actually cause problems as we go. But 
we know for sure that in places where these things don't exist, they do much better. Most foods now have to contain ingredient labels that list everything, every ingredient, ingredient in the food, but um, often it's in small print on the side of a package written in white lettering that makes it hard to see in the lighting of a big box store. Uh, most of us don't have time to read the ingredients. We might take a quick look at the nutrition facts label, which is also um, somewhat misleading because it is proportion size. Uh, which we don't take into account how many servings are in a box or a bag of things. Um, we don't take into account that the ingredients, or I'm sorry, or the nutritional values are listed in weight, not in calories. So it's hard to tell the, the actual percentage of calories that you're getting from fat, sugar, carbohydrate, and so forth. So sometimes two grams of saturated fat doesn't look um, that bad, but two grams of saturated fat, 18 calories and there's only 20 calories per tablespoon uh, per serving, then you can see it's almost all fat. When your friends tell you, your friends that aren't plant-based tell you that you're eating genetically modified soy or you're eating a lot of vegetables that have pesticides on them, one of the things that you can say is that if they're eating box foods or takeout food, um, they are consuming genetically modified corn products, whether it's in the thickeners, the additives, the uh, starches, the softeners, uh, genetically modified soy. So it, whether, not only in the oils that are in the product, but the, the, the binders are in the product. So over the years, again, the process, the basic ingredients of some of these things have changed, uh, where some thickeners were derived from from plants. Now they're uh, more of a chemical um, enzymatic process that they can be made industrial in high amounts that, again, our bodies don't know what to do with. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Again, the book is Fast Food Ingredients Revealed. So without further ado, here's Mel Weinstein. Enjoy the podcast. I'd like to welcome Mel Weinstein to the podcast. He is a podcaster as well, but and a chemist. But we're going to talk tonight about his book, Fast Food Ingredients Revealed. What exactly are you eating? And, you know, um, I alluded in the intro that you're a chemist and you've worked behind the scenes in some of these food ingredients. Um, so you kind of can enlighten, you can enlighten us firsthand about the backside of some of these things. So I think it'll be quite a fun and interesting conversation and we can keep it pretty light. But you started your book from being a food addict to a fanatic. So tell me a little bit about right. how you evolved from being a chemist to now an advocate for people's health through what's actually in the food. Well, I grew up in the 50s and the 60s and I was a typical American kid. Uh, sugar was king. And I had a huge sweet tooth as a kid, and uh, I ate pretty much all the wrong foods back then. Anything that was uh, uh, was sweet, uh, you know, that that runs the gamut. You know, from sodas to uh, cupcakes to 
well, you, you name it, you know, ice cream, uh, anything that uh, had some sweetness to it, I grabbed onto. And I ate like that all the time. And there wasn't really a lot of restrictions on that. Uh, sugar at that time, yeah, there were some people talking about how it wasn't good for your health, but uh, there, there wasn't a campaign against it. So, you know, my, my parents basically said, you know, don't, don't eat any junk foods before supper, you know, and that, and that was good enough, but you, you know, I, I could eat any kind of junk I wanted, you know, uh, before then or, or after supper. And so, you know, I was pretty much a junk food junkie. And I remember that when I went to elementary school, there was actually a candy store across the street which uh, you know, I made a lot of trips to, and I'd get out of get out of school, walk across the street, and just enjoy myself in that candy store. <laughs> you know, so there were a lot of there weren't very many limitations, as I said. Uh, and it wasn't until I got into my twenties that I really thought about what I was eating, and I came across a book called uh, Sugar Blues. I don't know if you ever heard of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it came out around. 1976, 77, sometime in there. And it railed against sugar. You know, it really smacked sugar around telling you it's not good for you. You know, stop eating it. Don't make it a mainstay in your diet. Have it, have it occasionally. That's okay. Uh, but, you know, really watch what you're eating. So I did that for maybe a year. And then, you know, my bad habits, you know, my little addictions came back. And uh, I, I didn't think about sugar until much later after that. So you you taught chemistry um, at a community college level, and you actually taught applied chemistry, which is you know I, I think really really interesting because um, and as a little background, I don't know I was a chemistry major before I went to medical school, and the only reason why I was cool. a chemistry major was that I heard through the grapevine that the dean uh, of biology didn't like pre-med students. So that's what led me to be a chemistry major. That was the, that was the thought process. Yeah. But I really, you know, so I, I, I went through general chemistries and, and organic and, and such, but biochemistry I thought was fascinating. And I could have, you know, I, 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 that, that very much interested me, the biochemistry aspect of things. And, um, but anyway, I went on into medical school and forgot all, all of that. And then, you know, have circled back with, uh, plant-based nutrition and come back to my biochemistry roots, so to speak. Um, but then you worked in industry and so you kind of knew how they made some of these things. Um, you, were right, to, right. um, you know, I, I wanted to, well, Talk talk early. You were in the what was it in this was it in the seventies that you were in the in the additive industry? What 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 at what year was that? No, no. Uh my career to pass, I uh got interested in teaching chemistry and that lasted for oh, about twelve years or so between a couple of community colleges. Um and then I, I started working part-time for a local company. Uh, it was uh, actually called A.E. Staley's initially, and then it changed hands and a big British conglomerate by the name of Tate and Lyle uh, purchased it. And this is around uh, 1990. Uh, so I worked for that company for 20 years, uh, retiring in 2010. 
Now, probably most people have never heard of Tate & Lyle. They're one of those companies that's behind the scenes. They don't advertise themselves very much. Uh, what they do is they produce uh, food ingredients for all the major food manufacturers in the country and the world. And a lot of those food ingredients are, are food additives. So having worked for them for 20 years, I got quite familiar uh, with a lot of the ingredients that wind up in uh, highly processed foods. Now that company was primarily focused on uh, corn, uh, at least in, in, in Illinois where I was working. And uh, so a lot of products, unbelievable. A lot of products come from corn, just hundreds and hundreds of different products. And so, you know, I, I learned not, not, as you said, not only about what these ingredients were, uh, where they wound up, but, you know, what was the function of them? And, you know, one kind of rule to follow is nothing winds up in a co commercial food uh, without a purpose. It's there for a reason. And it may be a good reason. It may be what you think is not a very important reason, but it's there. And food companies are not going to waste money putting anything in their food products. And when I say food company, I'm talking about commercial foods. Uh, they're not going to waste any money on, on anything that doesn't have to be there. And when, at what point, you know, so you mentioned corn and then soy was another one, but corn, at what point did the corn become, uh, you know, more of a roundup, non-organic, highly, you know, GMO type corn? Uh, that would have been, let me think for a moment, uh, probably in the middle 1990s, mm -hmm. maybe 1995. I mean, the research had been done but it hadn't hit the marketplace. I'm talking about the round, Roundup Ready uh, corn. So it was beginning to infiltrate the commodity food industry at that point. And, uh, you know, I, I was working for a research center at, at Tate and Lyle. So when something new came along, uh, particularly if it had to do with uh, analysis, I was an analytical chemist. Mm -hmm. So when, when GMOs hit the scene, um, I was tasked with the job of looking into that new technology and trying to figure out, well, how do we test for it? It was a whole new area for a food ingredient company to get into. And so I learned as much as I could about it. There were just a handful of labs in the whole country uh, where you could send a sample to and ask for what was generally a very good estimate <laughs> as to the amount of GMOs uh, that were in corn, for example. And so, you know, I kind of helped set up a testing program. And at that time, it's very different now, but at that time, uh, there were objections being raised to GMOs being in food products. And so the, this company I worked for, Tate & Lyle, they decided that uh, they would basically have two different streams of corn coming into their company. You know, one would be non-GMO and one would be GMO. So they had to contract with farmers who would agree to make either, uh, or actually they were more concerned about the non-GMO because there was a, a demand for it at that time. So they had to contract with farmers to 
agree that they weren't going to plant GMO corn. And so whenever, uh, you know, these big trucks came in or real cars came in to the plant, uh, the corn had, a sample of the corn had to be pulled and tested. Uh, and they did not like for that to take a very long time. So they were very interested in a test that could be run in a matter of minutes. And uh, so that was one of the things I got, got involved with is finding test kits that can do very quick testing of, of GMO corn. So uh, the deliveries could be verified on the spot. You know, the truck would be sitting there waiting, you know, for the, for the test result to come in. Mm-hmm. And, and did it shift over your career more towards the GMO corn? Yes, definitely. I mean, that went on for a few years. It kept a lot of people's jobs alive. You know, a lot of testing had to be done. Uh, but as GMOs more and more became accepted uh, in in uh, in the United States, and I don't know if that's really the right way of saying it, as as the um, controversy over GMOs became less and less and less, then people didn't get very concerned about that. Uh, and so the company eventually decided they didn't have to. They didn't have to separate it, those two strains of corn anymore. So and that that happened probably two or three years. In. So it would be fair to say that in the mid nineteen nineties, most processed food products that contained derivatives of corn or corn or soy probably were genetically modified. Actually, probably. Probably not. I mean, initially, the GMOs had to, uh, they, they had to prove their case, you know, that they were, were, the claim was that they were no different biologically other than the introduction of a foreign uh, gene uh, that would make them herbicide resistant. Uh, they, they, they had to kind of prove that they were safe, you know, so there were people looking at it. So initially, they made a small inroad. But over time, the like today, uh, you don't hear many people talking about GMOs, do you? You know, they're uh, they're the mainstay. I would say greater than eighty percent. I did see a graphic recently that showed a very very big curve. You know, from you know, say the nineteen nineties. You know, and it's going up, going up, going up. Uh, until it got, you know, over 80%. I think in the case of soy, maybe 90%. Uh, don't quote me, but, you know, much of those commodity crops are now GMO. Meaning that they are exposed to a whole lot more glyphosate and herbicides because yeah. that's what makes them easier to increase the yield because theoretically, because you can, yeah. you can spray them more. So yeah. there's two controversies. One is the, the actually what's inside the corn, the genetic modification itself. And that was the early concern. And then, as you point out, the later concern is, OK, now we were, we got free reign to, to spray uh, uh, Roundup Ready uh, glyphosate uh, on these on these crops. So, you know, what about the residues? You know, what kind of problems are associated with that? And, you know, I mean, I think that there probably is, you know, something to be. But. I guess, you know, when I hear in the plant-based world, when people are not plant-based, they often say, well, you know, you eat your products have such and such and such on them. But I don't think people realize that when you're eating in the middle of the store, the things that are in the box 
uh, and the preserve preservatives in very various foods, fast foods, as we'll get to, um, those all have been exposed to quite a bit of glyphosate and are probably yeah. genetically modified. Yeah. You know, and that's a huge change because you, you talked about in your book that, you know, again, 1960, we get a TV dinner. And then in the 70s, we get McDonald's and Kentucky Fried Chicken and maybe a Burger King. And then, you know, progress on and on. And a lot of people eat every meal at, from one of these places. Yeah. Uh, so the exposure becomes, you know, higher and higher. That's true. Um, one of the things I, I saw, um, you worked on a thing called sucrose polyester, Olean. Yeah, I didn't work on it. I talked about it, you know, in the book. It was another company, Procter & Gamble, uh, made that. And it was a, kind of to make things low-fat, so to speak, a fat substitute, but it caused uh, yeah. GI cramping and diarrhea. And, you know, they actually came out with a dietary, a diet pill that was based off of that. Oh, really? I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, so one of the first, um, after FenFen, you know, got taken off the market for all its problems, then they introduced a drug that acted very much like that, that pulled fat. So if you ate fat, it pulled, you didn't digest it, you just pulled it out of the, you know, um, into the intestine. So people had massive GI cramping and diarrhea and things like that. And so you could lose weight, but you were losing weight in the wrong way <laughs> becoming sick more or less um, yeah the other thing you know you, you talked about early on before we get into the fast food you talked about um uh dan and yogurt you know yeah you showed some of the ingredients and in, you know just in foods that people think are healthy they're going to feed their kids you know people that eat yogurt are you know healthy people right right you got to be careful um the the U.S. government did us a great favor, you know, when uh, in, uh, let's see, when was that, Two, 2010 or so, uh, when, when they required the label on all commercial products to list the ingredients, you know, before then, you know, it, it was optional if a, if a food manufacturing company wanted to reveal what was in their products or not. Uh, but, you know, with the, with the newer food labels, you know, you got the nutrition label, which was a, a good boon, too, for people who bother to, to learn about it and use it. But the ingredient list, you know, is wonderful. Uh, if you want to take the time, there's a couple of things. If you take the time to actually, you know, when you're picking up a, a container in the, in the grocery store and actually see what the ingredients are and then to kind of educate yourself about which ingredients are are okay, which ingredients might be bad for you. But in the case of, uh, of yogurt, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's got some good properties that people are interested in, if you can tolerate the dairy, which which I can't. Um, but, you know, it, it's got... It's got some healthy elements to it. You know, it's it's got the protein, it's got the uh the the probiotics that are in there and if that's all you see and that's all you care about and you don't look at the rest of the label you're not going to see other things in there that you might not want to be eating you know because uh every food product pretty much uh 
has a lot of research that goes into it. And that research addresses uh, what, what that product tastes like, what it looks like, how stable that product is, how that product is re- preserved over time. And all of those things need other ingredients to provide you know, those, those properties. And so when you look at a, a yogurt container, you don't just see two or three things, you know, the milk and flavoring agent or whatever. Uh, you see a whole bunch of ingredients, possibly. Now, that, that spans a range. You know, different companies have, I would call, better products than others. What are some of the worst things that we should look for in a product on a store shelf? You know, you well, that's, would, a... <laughs> that's a huge. But if you had, what would be your top 10 you know, maybe top five things, if you saw it, you put it right back, you know, or, or you, maybe you had some, uh, you know, do you have a definite no list? I do. I just uh, put out a, a, a podcast episode. Uh, my podcast is called Food Labels, Re- Re- <clears throat> say that again, Food Labels Revealed. And so the late episode uh, addresses essentially the uh, rules to eat by. And I put out, I don't know, something like 13 rules as to what to watch for when you're eating uh, processed or highly processed foods. So some of the things that come to mind is, uh, and some of these are pet peeves. Um, the, one of them is if you're reading a food label ingredient list, uh, well, first of all, know that the the first ingredient you come to is the one present in the largest amount. And then as you go down the list, uh, they get smaller and smaller in amount until you get to the end. That's, that ingredient is there in the least amount. Uh, so if in the top of the list there's something that doesn't look right, that doesn't sound right, uh, it's there in you know maybe a much larger amount than most of the other ingredients on the list. So that's that's one thing. Um, then one of the pet peeves of pet peeves is if if you find an ingredient that is an acronym uh, like TBHQ. Uh, first of all, the uh, Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, and don't ask me why they allow this, but they allow food companies to use acronyms on the label which I think is just unconscionable Uh, because you're you're looking at this acronym TBHQ, for example, you don't know what that is. You know, unless you're a chemist, unless you work in the food industry or a food scientist, you're not going to know what that is or unless you've taken the time, you know, to look things up. So, you know, why food companies can get away with just listing acronyms, uh, I don't understand. Now, Somebody might claim, well, you know, these acronyms, they, it, would, it would take up too much space to put them on the label. Like TBHQ stands for tertiary butyl hydroxyquinone. Okay, that's a mouthful. And that's a name, you know, only a chemist like me would, would, would like to say <laughs> and be interested in. It, it happens to be an antioxidant. But most of the acronyms that I've seen on labels generally are not the best ones. To be in a product, uh, you may you may remember Dr. Dulaney, uh, BHA and BHT. They were very common. That was the uh, 
one of the main preservatives. Those are two different chemicals, BHA, BHT. And you'd see them all the time on commercial uh, processed food labels. And uh, BHA is a, a butylated hydroxy anisole and BHT is butylated hydroxy toluene. So again, those are long names. You're, you're not going to see them, usually not see them spelled out on the label. And, you know, they've had some, uh, some knocks, you know, from the health industry. I think that's why uh, you're seeing them use less and less on food labels, which, which I think is a good thing. A uh, couple of other pet peeves. If, if you see the words uh, natural, uh, flavors or natural colors, uh, I wouldn't trust that food. Uh, and, and that those phrases are used all over the place. Very, very common. Uh, same, you know, with the natural color. Uh, and the reason uh, that's not a good thing is because they're not telling you what those uh, flavors are or those colors. And so you have no idea. I mean, it could, it could be one flavor or one color, or it could be a mixture of things. And so you really have very little information to work on. And if you have, uh, you know, a sensitivity to one of those flavorings or colors, you wouldn't know. I mean, you'd, you'd be eating it and have no information that this is going to affect my health. And so... Those are not, I think, a very good thing. Uh, and let's see, what else? Um, you may have noticed, what's that? D-A-T-E-M. Oh, you're talking about going back to acronyms. Oh, yeah. That's, that's one of my favorite. <laughs> it's about five words long. Uh, but I was, I was going to mention... Uh, uh, another one that's quite common uh, is modified food starch. Have you seen that? Yes. And that's a totally nondescript term. Yeah, it tells you there's something related to starch in that food. But modified food, star modified food starches, and they could say corn starch, wheat starch, you know, whatever starch they happen to be using, uh, those are additives that are made through physical processes or through chemical processes. That's what the word modified means. And, it, and it's not a single ingredient. It's, a, it's a, again, a combination of ingredients, some of which may be okay, some may not be okay. But they get this umbrella term that food manufacturers get to use on the label and they don't have to reveal, you know, where it comes from or why it's there. In the running industry, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, you know, some of the products, they make gels that... I'm are, not familiar. I'm not a runner. <laughs> that, um, that are, you know, each company has their claim to fame on how they get sugar in a little packet, like, you know, a little bit twice the size of a ketchup packet, you know, when they're all about 100 mm -hmm. calories but their claim to fame is they have different starch sugar forms. And one of the big ones, maltodextrans. Oh, that's another one to look out for you. Yeah, very generic. You know, so, to, and I, 
and, and they claim that that's like, well, that's a good thing. And again, it's well, a- you can make an argument there. <laughs> it's probably better than cane sugar uh-huh. or beet well, sugar. Well, and slower, um, slower, slower digesting digestion. Is that what it would yeah. be more, more likely to, to do? Or that's yeah, what- essentially, essentially what a maltodextrin is, is it's, it's partway between being a sugar, you know, pure sugar, like glucose, okay, which comes from corn, uh, or I should say dextrose, either, either word would apply there. So when in the plant, you know, corn is broken, the starch component of corn is broken down into sugars, okay, and it's done using acid, it's done using enzymes or a combination. Um, and then as the process proceeds, that starch gets broken down more and more. And if you allow the procedure to go to the very end, then you wind up getting the glucose or the dextrose. But in between, you can stop the process uh, and isolate the starch after it's only been partly broken down. And, uh, you know, that gives you an array of maltodextrins. Okay, so you're looking at something which can either be not very sweet or at the other end can be fairly sweet. Okay, and so there they they can say, yeah, there's a lot less sugar in it. Uh, You're dealing with something that still has some properties of starch, and therefore it is going to break down slower in the body. In the, you know, I mean, it, it comes down to, you know, absorbable, um, you know, what your body sees. If your mitochondria sees a carbon and a hydrogen and an oxygen from, you know, it, I guess it comes with, the, to me, the process, the more acids and the more chemistry you have to do to get to a product, potentially the more byproducts that you have. Is that correct? I would say generally speaking, uh, I, I would also say that the FDA has no problem with maltodextrins. So, you know, yeah, they're okay with it. I, yeah, I don't know that I've used the FDA as my benchmark for what's actually good for somebody. <laughs> yeah, there, there are uh, things to say about that. Yeah. Um, but it is, it is somewhat amazing how, you know, these, some of these products, you know, and again, they're fancy words. But there, it turns out that for the most part, they're chemistry experiments. And if you're yeah. trying to, if you're running a race and you're trying to get glucose into your cell, you know, I, I don't know that, you know, slowing it down, you know, there's, there's, there's variations on that theme. You know what I mean? Uh, as far as different, yeah. problems. because when you have something that if you take a belly full of starch, on the other hand, you may, you know, end up pulling a lot of water in from your gut as well, you know, and having a problem. So, um, it, you know, it comes down to, it's just a little different way of marketing. Of course, then they add all these flavors to things, uh, yeah. artificial, artificial flavors. And so I, you know, yeah. yeah the processed food industry is very good at marketing their products, finding a niche and a new industry. You know, if it's long distance running, that's become more and more popular they will find a way of making something uh, they say will benefit. So getting to the book, Fast Food Ingredients Revealed, um, what's, what's kind of shocked you? I mean, um, 
over the years, things have, I guess, evolved probably, um, you know, but uh, the making of foods, making of, you know, I've heard of the, the pink slime, the, um, the chicken McNuggets with 36 ingredients, one of which is chicken. Um, uh, you know, tell me, tell me a little bit about what you found in doing some of that research. You know, did you find that, you know, to me, I always worry about as, as a human, our body knows, and, and you alluded to this, you know, before 1960, you had a potato, a carrot, a beet, um, you might make bread that was, you know, uh, end up using the starches and doing a little bit of chemistry as bread is a little bit of a chemistry product. But for the most part, we didn't have a whole lot of additives um, on our on our plates. And now we have these, when we metabolize something, we have leftover byproducts. And what does our body do with these leftover additives? Yeah. And, you know, yeah, we're we, a bit of a chemistry set when it comes to what we eat. Yeah. And so your liver can only, you know, if you're eating fast foods and you're taking four medications, you know, how how is your liver handling all these different chemist, uh, you know, chemicals as well as, you know, pharmaceuticals um, that people consume every day? Um, yeah. So one of, one of the things that shocked me, I didn't talk about this in the book, I don't think very much, but. Uh, as far as I know, there there aren't any studies being done on the interactive effects of all these chemicals. Yeah, there's got to be some studies done to, you know, assure that they're going to be safe uh, to to eat, and they're going to set some limits how much can appear in a food, some upper limits. Uh, but you know, who's asking the question? Okay, we're eating these foods that have hundreds and hundreds of additives in them. You know. Some people are eating that every day. Uh, what is what is the collective effect of eating all these chemicals? And like I said, I don't think there's anybody really asking that question. No, I mean, and you know, it's uh, there's you know fifty ingredients in things like a flour tortilla, you know, or you know some of the if you go to or you know you're going you had Taco Bell is one of the places that you looked at, you know the nachos or the grilled chicken, whatever. I mean, they're basically chemistry experiments. Yeah, uh, that you know the book got uh, launched in my brain uh, after a couple of years. I was doing my podcast and I came across a, a couple of. Uh, food items from fast food restaurants. And, you know, I, I, the, the ingredients in those foods were available. And so I started to look at them just like I had been looking at uh, various uh, food products in grocery stores, you know, big box stores, convenience stores. And so the question popped up in my mind, okay, are, are they the same or are they different? Is the fast food industry using something different that I'm not very aware of? And so after looking at a few fast food restaurants, I thought, well, uh, I'm going to see if anybody's written anything on this subject. So I scoured the Internet and, you know, there's lots of books about fast foods, but you know, a lot of them have to do with, you know, fast food addiction, fast food history, you know, studying the founders, you know, that, and telling stories. But there, I didn't find any book that talked about in detail uh, the ingredients in fast foods. Now you can go online and you can, you know, type in, you know, what are the ingredients in McDonald's French fries? And uh, you might find another organization that has that information or says they have that information, but do the 
fast food manufacturers actually provide it. Okay. And I did a little search on, I had about 25 different fast food restaurants I selected. And I did a search to see which ones actually reveal that information online. And I think I came up with something like 12, so or maybe eight or nine. So it's roughly a third of the companies I looked up actually told people who were curious and went to their website to get that information, you know, told them, you know, what, what was in all of their products, their whole, their whole menu. Uh, now, interestingly, the, there is no legal requirement for a fast food company or any restaurant for that matter to tell you what's in their food. Now, on the other hand, there is a law that says fast food restaurants need to reveal the nutritional information for every item that they sell. Uh, and you may not see that posted in the restaurant when you walk in, uh, but they're required to provide that information if a customer asks for it. Now, it's limited to chain restaurants, okay? So you're not going to get this information from your local mom and pop restaurant uh, that's a kind of a one-off kind of restaurant. It, there has to be at least 20 uh, restaurants that share that name and they have to qualify as a chain restaurant. Then they're, they're required to provide people with nutritional information, but not the ingredients. So if you find a restaurant that does share its ingredients, that's on a voluntary basis. And uh, so when I decided to write the book, you know, there's hundreds of fast food restaurants, uh, but you know, very few of them reveal their ingredients. So I had to look up the ones that, that did that. And then I, you know, like I said, I came up with maybe eight or so, 10, uh, I had to decide. I can't, I can't cover all the all the menu items in, in all these restaurants, even though there were maybe eight or ten. So I wound up selecting three restaurants that fit the bill. They they had to be major uh, national international restaurants. They had to be, be big players, and they had to be kind of representative of what Americans eat. So I chose McDonald's for kind of a American food, Pizza Hut for Italian food, and Tile for Mexican. So I get over a period of a year, I gathered the data uh, from those three restaurants. So I listed uh, all of the menu items, and then I broke down the menu items into uh, component parts, like, you know, in a hamburger, like a Big Mac or something, you've got the bun, you got the patty, you've got the, the special sauce, pickles, etc. So uh, it got broken down into those categories. And then each of those types of foods were broken down into their ingredient list, just like you'd see on a label. And I wound up just in those three restaurants, uh, looking at over 300 menu items. So what became clear right away, this is a very labor intensive uh, effort. And I was glad I only picked three restaurants, but it took a long time to break down all of that data. Did it help you break your fast food addiction? Oh, well, I ended that a few years ago. I, yeah. Every once in a while I'll go to a fast food. I'll try to pick fast food restaurant. I'll try to pick one that's 
a little higher on the list, you know, so I like bean burritos. So, you know, I'll go to Taco Bell, you know, maybe a couple of times a year. If I don't have any better choices and I'm really hungry, I may stop at Subway, you know, because they have a, a bit of a, a health halo, you know, over their heads. But I, I did a, a whole podcast on Subway and uh, it's not as healthy as you think. They use a lot of the same ingredients. No, I mean, you can just, you can smell it by, it doesn't smell like bread. It smells like chemistry when you walk in there. I try to choose the best bread, but it's not whole wheat, unfortunately. No, but I mean, all of them are made because they're soft and they last. You know, anything that yeah. is still stable uh, with those, you know, uh, additives. Yeah. And many people think those breads are made on site. I think I used to think that. But the breads are shipped there, uh, pre-made, already frozen, and they just have to bake them. They're just thawing them. So you get the aroma from the, the thaw, the baking of yeah. the bread. Yeah. Um, you know, again, it, it comes down to when you look at the book and you look at the list of ingredients and some of them being, you know, it comes down preservatives and stabilizers. And you mentioned the Twinkie experiment. People have done the McDonald's fries or the McDonald's burger experiment. Um, I actually, um, I have two Oreo cookies in a jar here that I've had for about, um, probably 15 years that still look like an Oreo cookie, no mold, no nothing on them, you know? Um, yeah. Probably don't taste like an Oreo cookie. Anymore. I haven't, I haven't <laughs> tasted, I don't, don't have enough guts to taste one. I'm going to see how long they last, but you know, it, the fact that things last that way, you know, you wonder how you actually can digest them uh, and yeah. where those products, products actually end up. Um, yeah. Those preservatives are pretty powerful, aren't they? They, they do the job. And, you know, so the question is how, you know, over time in our exposure to preservatives, um, you know, what's, you know, what uh, is going to happen? What about things like yeah. you see, let's, let's look, um, and I know it's not really the subject of the book so much, but um, what well, does come up in some things, you know, guar gum and locust bean and, you know, some of the thickening agents that are used in plant-based alternatives. Um, right. Um what do you what do you think about those over time? The uh, the stabilizers, uh, m most of them are from plants, you know, either land plants or marine plants like seaweed, you know. So they have a good starting place, uh, depending upon the processing of the original materials. They they may they're health benefits, you know, may decline over time. So that depends upon the particular stabilizer you're looking at. Now, when I worked for this company, Tate & Lyle, uh, they made uh, xanthan gum, which is very common. Uh, you can get that from a natural plant, but uh, it, was, it was manufactured. Okay, so that's a key point. Is it, is it natural, you know, quotes around natural, or is it, is it manufactured? And so the xanthan gum, you know, that I tested as an analytical chemist, you know, um, it had, it had gotten, it had gone through lots of individual steps to get to the final product. And the final product's probably very similar to what you get from the natural product. Uh, but you know, what was it exposed to along the way? You know, first of all, it was a uh, 
a process that re relied upon the modification of a bacteria. And that bacteria was modified in such a way that it would be kind of forced to produce uh, that gum, you know, that actually produced a small amount of it, but then it was engineered, you know, to produce much larger amounts that would make it cost effective to put it through a manufacturing process. And so, you know, once it, it made its thing, then the, that, that, had to, that gum had to be extracted, it had to be purified through various manufacturing processes, you know, so it was complicated, you know, before the final product was made. Wow. So what do you want? Do you want something made in a factory or you're going to try to focus more on uh, food products that come from nature? You know, even I've talked on the podcast before about, um, um, you know, the um, sugarcane juice, you know, so we can grow sugarcane in Florida and mm -hmm. you, you can juice the sugarcane and you get a green juice out of it that has a lot of antioxidants and actually has health benefits. Yeah. But if you take that and go through the quite laborious chemical process, end up with cane sugar. Yes. And, you know, you've taken all the goodness out of it and probably added some benzenes and some other things to it that, um, you know, result in something that's probably not not so good. Yeah. Cane sugar is pretty complicated. The first time I looked at that process, I was kind of surprised. I think there's maybe what, 15, 20 industrial steps that have to be followed before you get to the, to the white powder. The interesting part about cane sugar was originally sugarcane was grown in New Orleans and they were going to make cane sugar out of it. And it was, like you say, it was so complicated and so laborious that they just gave up and, and made rum. <laughs> <laughs> It's a lot easier. There to you go. Rum. More direct process. Huh? A lot easier to make rum than it has to try to get to down to a white sugar. So what's your, what's your takeaway on all this? Where should we go as a, as a people? You know, are we, are, are you okay that, you know, it's like, what do, what do we do? Is this contributing to obesity? Is this contributing to ill health cancers? Are we accumulating can, you know, what do we do? Um, yeah. Good question. <laughs> Uh, as an individual, I don't know there's a whole lot you can do other than to stop supporting, you know, those kinds of food products that have a lot of additives in them and, and, and are questionable for your health. But as a, as a society, I think there is a, a, some big steps can be taken. Uh, the, the last third of my book, the third section, let's call it, uh, dealt with answering the question, okay, if you're eating a diet, you know, that's high in junk food and, and a lot of uh, the word you hear a lot these days are ultra processed foods, you know, which are the foods that are highly industrialized that we're, we've been talking about that are made in factories. Uh, are those going to deleteriously affect our health over time? So I did some research online. I wanted to find some recent studies, you know, say the last 10 years that actually supported that argument that uh, ultra-processed foods, a short, the, the shortened name is UPS or the acronym, so I'll use that from now on, you know, will a diet high in the consumption of UPFs cause you to have bad health over time, cause you to come down with, you know, say, lifestyle-related diseases, you know, coronary heart disease, stroke, cancer, and and 
or even just uh, shorten your life. And so I found a number of studies. I chose 10 of them to write about in the book. And across the board, uh, the conclusions were a definite yes. And, and uh, most of these studies were uh, associative. You know, they, they weren't proving it with, uh, mecha- with mechanistic type of proofs. But they, but they were associated. So these studies would be huge. They might take 100,000 people and study them over a long period of time, you know, eight years, 10 years. And they'd have these people report what they were eating during that time period. They might take the first year or two of the study to get a baseline, you know, before they started uh paying attention to the data they were collecting. So these people in the study, they'd have to report what they were eating. Uh, that information would be picked up by the, uh, by the researchers in the study, and they would uh, essentially categorize the different foods that people were eating. And they might have a category. Well, you may have heard of the class- classification system called NOVA. It's N-O-V-A. It's used quite a bit these days. And they take a they take a food, and they want to know there's like four groups that food could fit into. So the first group, group one, uh, are foods that are either unprocessed or very lightly processed. You know, so use an example of an apple. Okay, so you pick an apple off the tree. A lot of people just eat it right there. Okay, that's an unprocessed food. Other people might take that apple, they, they want to wash it really good to get the dirt off, if there's any dirt on there, try to get the, uh, the pesticides off the apple. Okay, it's still essentially an apple, right, when, by the time you're done. Uh, so you might call that slightly processed. Okay, uh, the second group uh, in the Nova system are called culinary ingredients, when I first saw that, I said, what are they talking about? Culinary ingredients. Well, it's anything, just think of your kitchen. It's anything you would use in your kitchen to uh, process that food into a dish that you want to make. So culinary is referring to herbs and spices, you know, things to, you know, kick up that food, get taste better. Uh, it's, those are considered, you know, generally okay, right? Uh, and then the third group, is a combination of group one and group two. Now the third group is, okay, we're going to make commercial products. We want these things to last. So they are going to have some preservatives because when we put them on the shelf, we don't want them to deteriorate very quickly. Uh, and so as we go up in group number, we get to worse and worse foods to eat. Uh, if we're really paying attention, uh, most of us would be okay with group three. All right. Not too bad. But then you get to group four. Group four foods are what I call industrialized foods. You know, many of their ingredients are made in factories. And these are the ultra processed food ingredients. And these are the ones you need to watch out for the most. So these, these studies that I selected to talk about in the book are, are looking at the, the, data being collected and separating them into these four groups and looking to see, well, how much are people eating of these ultra-processed foods? And then correlating 
that data with the medical data that they were collecting. So they may be looking at how, well, how many people had heart attack events, stroke events, how many people came down with cancer, how many people were dying younger than they probably should, what was their mortality statistics. And so pretty much they found that, yeah, there, there's an impact on those particular criteria, uh, the more UPFs that you ate. So they may report, you know, for every 10% uh, increase in the amount of UPFs consumed, there might be a 12% increased risk of heart disease. You know, so that's generally how they reported the results. So yeah, the, the definite conclusion was yes, yeah, you're harming yourself if you choose to eat a lot of junk food and a lot of fast food, or even just eat a lot of food that to you might seem to be okay, but has a, a large number of these uh, ultra processed ingredients in there. Now, another thing in my book, if, you, if you've got a little bit of time, uh, I, okay, I already had a breakdown, all the ingredients in all these three restaurants. And so what I did was I asked the question, uh, how would I label each of these ingredients? Would I call them unprocessed or slight, slightly processed? Would they be moderately processed, highly processed, or, or uh, extremely processed? And uh, so I tagged each ingredient, and that was a bit of a chore too. <laughs> but uh, but th what made it a little hard is that I couldn't pull up a book anywhere, you know, and turn to uh, potato chips, for example, and it would give me the level of industrialization of of that of that food product, or or I should say, look at the ingredients. Let's say the oil that was used to make that make potato chips. You know, it wouldn't. There's nowhere I could go for that information. So I basically made up my own system uh, based upon my experience. And my chemistry knowledge, uh, I tag each ingredient with one of those categories. There's five categories. Uh, and then I came up with a little mathematical equation that I could plug in. Well, how many unprocessed ingredients were in this food? How many moderately or extremely processed ingredients were in this food? And I came up with a number. And the number, the way I worked it, was a, no a number was a percent. It was called a processed food index or PFI. And it went from zero to a hundred percent. Zero being, this is a great food to eat, very unprocessed, you know, go for it. All the way up to a hundred, which meant stay away from this. You know, you're, you're taking your, your health and uh, you're threatening your health by eating something like that. Now, most of the fast food restaurants weren't down there around zero. The, the actual cutoffs are like zero to 10, 11 to 20. 21 to 30, and so on. Uh, most of them fell in the middle, okay? So maybe the PFIs were in the 30s or 40s or 50s. I didn't see any that were up in the 80s or, or 90s. But uh, even the ones that went up to uh, the 40s and 50s, I classify as extremely industrialized. Mm -hmm. and would advocate for people not to eat those. Now, um, 
like I said, that was my own system. Uh, there are other people who use the Nova system, but that's, you know, uh, it, that's performed in a little different fashion. Uh, but you asked the question, what can we do in society to, to help people answer the question, should I or should I not be eating this commercial food? And so what I looked at is, uh, are there countries in the world or are there companies in the world who actually uh, have a scoring system for commercial foods? And I found there are, there's lots of companies, like maybe lots of countries, maybe 10, uh, 12 or so actually had a label that now, unfortunately, the, the requirement was not mandatory. It was most of the time it's voluntary, right? So they didn't go as far as I would like to see it, but there would be a label on the front of, called a front of package label that would have a scoring system and maybe A through E or a number system uh, where a consumer could pick up the box and they could look at that score, look at that label and see what score that food product has. So it was from one to five and, and one being the best, five being the worst. Uh, they could say, okay, this has a number three on it. I need to make a decision. Should I eat this or not? Uh, is it gonna be good for me? Uh, but if it was a one, you know, they may not hesitate. They don't have to turn the box around and try to understand and scrutinize and figure out what a nutrition label was telling them or what an ingredient list was telling them. Somebody else was doing the work for them. All they had to do would be to look at this very simple scoring system. Now, the other part of that is I think there should be two scoring systems. So when you pick up a, a commercial food, you should see one for nutrition and then you sh should see another one for how processed is that food. Yeah. Now you have two pieces of information. Yeah, I, I guess that, that would be great. Uh, unfortunately, none of us can agree on what is ultimately good nutrition. You know, there's quite a variety. Yeah, there'd have to be a, uh, a whole uh, group of... Um, you know, for the average, con you know, the average consumer, you know, I always um, counsel my patients, members, you know, the, if the ingredients, the longer it is, you know, the better yeah. the chance is that you're going to get into something that you don't, uh, you want, you know, so again, yeah. back to the example of bread, uh, bread is flour, water, you know, in sugar or um, flour, water, and salt, uh, for the most part. Uh, but right. you know, uh, wonder bread is, you know, has a whole lot oh, more involved. That was my favorite as a kid. <laughs> I don't need it anymore. Right. You know, there's, you know, and, and mainly because there's, you know, the soft food industry is really, and I think that that's the other thing that's a problem is that most processed foods end up making something that's actually very soft, pliable, easy to digest. And of course, with flavor enhancers makes us overeat. So you don't have to work to eat mm -hmm. it. Um, and it's designed. Do you know why? You know why they make those products softer? Don't have to work to eat them. Well, so many of us, you know, eat on the, we don't sit down to meals. A lot of families don't, you know, so we kind of grab our food, eat it while we're on to the next task. And that makes it a lot easier to digest, right? Um, perhaps, you know, perhaps, but yeah, I, think, <laughs> I do. I, you know, you can eat, 
you know, certainly uh, you could probably get down four slices of Wonder Bread to one slice of homemade bread. You know what I mean? As far as that goes, you can get down a, a order of French fries easier than you can get down a baked potato. Right. You know, you know, on and on and on. Um, but I think that that's the process. But there's actually been some uh, information looking at the jaw development of of kids and that. Right. That, you know, we don't eat anything we have to chew, um, you know, and I hear it over and over again, you know, it's like it takes too much time to eat or chewing is difficult for me in, you know, in the case of kale or something along those lines, you know, rather than in cabbage, rather than, you know, something that's, you know, a Kentucky fried chicken coleslaw that's been sitting in mayonnaise and marinating and all, you know what I mean? So, right, right. It's, yeah, so and the longer we get away from eating those kind of healthy foods, the harder it will be to get back to them. Yes. You know, we've conditioned ourselves. Absolutely. Well, I think the book was very revealing and uh, really, really interesting. So, uh, I, you know, I'll make sure I put links to the book and certainly your podcast. I I, um, I just kind of noticed that and I'll, I'll be tuning in. So, Oh, I'll, great. And, um, you know, good luck. I think it's you're, you're doing a great service for people to get people more aware of, you know, what they're actually eating as opposed to uh, yeah. eat now, ask questions later, maybe. Yeah, that, that's the purpose of the book is to kind of raise awareness and uh, hopefully it'll get in the hands of more people for that purpose. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Yeah, Dr. Lane, I appreciate you having me on. It was right. fun. Take care. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Mel. Um, again, he has a podcast as well called Food Labeled Revealed. The name of the book is Fast Food Ingredients Revealed. Um, hope you check both of them out. Um, it's always nice to get as much information to support your food choices as possible. It helps you to stay on track uh, and proceeding on your health journey as you would like. If you're interested in finding out more about our practice, please go on over to drdelaney.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y, and check it out. You can email me at jamie at drdelaney.com. would love to hear from you. Thank you. We've got our million downloads, so I'm not sure um, how many years it's been going on, but 552 episodes later, we've got a million downloads, so um, I'm really happy about that. A lot of you have been listening a long time. I appreciate that very much. Share the podcast with your friends. Uh, the first of the year, I believe we're going to have a new educational opportunity with the practice that is more of an online opportunity, so stay tuned to hear more details. Thanks always for listening. Thank you. Bye.